If you are just joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, we've been in a series in the book of John, and today we're actually going to come to a point that will bring us to halfway. The laughs are because we've been in the book of John for like a year and a half already, okay? Um, <laughs> no, we, we like taking deep dives in the scripture. Uh, next week, we're going to take a break, though. We're going to take about four or five weeks and hit some topics that are really pertinent, I think, to your lives, to our lives here uh, today. And so we're going to do that. We like to take breaks uh, and break the books up into sections. And so uh, that's typically how we roll around here. But I want to get us going with what we're talking about here with a question or a couple questions actually that I think we all ask at some point in life. And these questions go something like this. Why won't God? Why would God? When will God? Anybody ever ask any questions like that in your life? Yeah, I think at some point we all have, um, and if you haven't yet, you probably just haven't had a season of life uh, that hasn't quite gone the way you planned. And I think these are questions that every one of us from time to time as we find ourselves in, in seasons and unexpected events and heartaches and loss, we wonder these questions, we ask these questions. If, if God is who we've been led to believe, why, why would he do that? Why would he allow that in our lives? I know he could do that. Why won't he do that? If he's who we've been led to believe, why isn't he showing up in this situation? I've been praying about this so much. If he's who we've been led to, to believe, like when will he do that? Do you ever notice God oftentimes doesn't work on our timing? feels often like God's late showing up to whatever the situation is. And here's the thing. Jesus knew we would ask these questions. In fact, when we ask these questions, we're, we're in really good company with people that have followed God over the ages. Uh, just go read the Psalms sometime. And Jesus' followers and Jesus, some of Jesus' closest friends actually ask these questions. And today we're going to look at an event in Jesus' life, that Jesus actually um, sets up in a way that causes his closest friends to ask questions just like these. Now, if you want to start turning in your Bible over to John chapter 11, we're going to be in John 11 in a minute, and we're going to, this is a long account, but it's like one account, and so we're going to go through the whole thing. It's 45 verses, so buckle your seatbelts. We're going to move as fast as we can here today. But a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, there was a small town called Bethany. And in Bethany, uh, there were two sisters and a brother that became good friends with this radical rabbi who is also a miracle worker. And just a note on that, even um, historians that didn't believe in Jesus, that were against Jesus, like Tacitus, acknowledged the fact that he was a miracle worker. It was wide known. Everyone knew that this in, in the time. And apparently, these this two sisters and this brother opened up their hearts to Jesus and they also opened up their home for Jesus and scholars think it's very likely that this was kind of Jesus' home base. Whenever he would go do ministry and teach in Jerusalem, when he'd go down to the Passover, we've been looking at the feasts that Jesus came down to. Uh, scholars think that it's very likely Jesus stayed at this home 
of his friends in Bethany. In fact, they become, become somewhat like extended family for, uh, for Jesus. Anybody have family? Like these are family, you know, you, you know you're a good friend when you can walk into your, your, your friend's house and eat food out of their fridge without asking, right? Fridge friends. Everybody needs some fridge friends. You just got some friends and you can, yeah. So anyway, that's the kind of relationship here. So John chapter 11, verse one says this. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, pause. Because if you grew up in church, you're like, oh, oh, I know the story. Anybody? You've heard this story before? A few of you, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, this is the Lazarus one, right? Now, don't skip down to the ending. Don't get ahead of me here because I really want you to experience this and feel this maybe in a new way here today. Now, if you're here and maybe you're just new to God, church, and the Bible, just checking out church, we're so glad you're here. Um, maybe you've never read this, this account before, and if that's you, um, you get to experience this with fresh eyes. But spoiler alert, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spoil the story for you. Um, I don't feel too bad because the story's been out for 2,000 years and it's the bestseller of all time. Um, so I don't feel too bad about that, but spoiler alert, um, he, he's gonna be okay, okay? He's gonna live. So I'm just gonna, gonna put, throw that up there uh, so you don't get too nervous. Anybody ever flip to the end? You like the, the mystery book and you flip to the end and you're like, whew, the hero's still alive. Okay, I can enjoy all the drama now. No, just me? Okay, a few others, okay, yeah. So anyway, the book of John, as we, get to this, as we get to this amazing account, the book of John is often divided by scholars into two halves. And the first half is known as the book of signs. There are seven incredible, miraculous signs that Jesus does. And John cho chooses to highlight these seven. There's many more. In fact, at the end, he says, if I were to tell you everything um, that Jesus did, it would, there wouldn't be enough books in the, in the world to hold it. But these, he says, these signs I have recorded, I have written so that for a very real purpose that you might believe and that by believing in Jesus, you might find life, real life, eternal life, abundant life. And so this is actually the seventh sign. So this is where many scholars see the book of John. It's gonna take a turn after here and we're gonna be done with sort of the first half, the book of signs and move into the final weeks of Jesus' life as he, as he begins moving toward the cross. A few things that are kind of cool. This is the seventh sign and seven is a symbolic biblical number of completion. And that's important because this is the most dramatic, important sign yet. And it's kind of cool because Lazarus, if you translate his name Lazarus in his Hebrew, the Hebrew equivalent, um, which I'm sure he would have been called, Lazarus, the numeric value, because there's a, every Hebrew word has a numeric value, adds up to 144, which is also kind of a cool, significant number of completion and fullness. And so John's guy working, he's so brilliant. He's working on multiple, multiple layers here. And this account, we actually only find in John. And some scholars think the other gospel writers were anxious to protect Lazarus from the authorities, because what we're going to see is because of this account, um, a couple chapters down in chapter 12, not only are they trying to kill Jesus, they're trying to get Lazarus out of here because he's kind of, um, he puts him in an awkward position. And so they're trying to kill Lazarus too. Now, 
Um, we know from church history and tradition uh, that Lazarus actually ends up, probably fled during persecution and ends up on the island of Cyprus where he's a leader in the early church later on. So here's, that's all sort of to set up this account, this account that's very familiar to us and it was also very familiar to the, earlier follows, uh, the early followers of Jesus. In fact, it's so familiar that John, he doesn't set anything up. He's not gonna tell us about this Mary who anoints Jesus until a couple chapters later but he just assumes you would know who that is because it's such a, a common story in the time. So you have Lazarus, you have Mary, you have Martha, these close friends of Jesus. And Lazarus is sick, apparently very sick. This isn't, you know, just a little cough or anything. Uh, this is really sick. It says, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, Lazarus, that's quite a reputation, isn't it? No name, just, hey, the one you love. And if you look at the Greek, um, there's a couple of Greek words for love. And this one that they use is phileo. And the idea is like, your bro, your good friend. You know, he's like, they're bros or ladies, they're besties. That's, that's, the, that's the implication here, right? Like, hey, Jesus, your bro, he's sick. Come on, and the, and the implication, the idea is, you're obviously gonna come do something about this. All we have to do is send you word and you're gonna do something about this. Because you've been doing stuff, I mean, we've been hearing all the stories. You've done so many incredible things. You've healed so many people. It's amazing. Obviously, Jesus is gonna do something about this. But I find it significant. A little later, G Jesus will tell his disciples, I, I, have not, I have not called you servants, but friends. And I think it's very interesting and very encouraging that the God of the universe, because Jesus claims to be God in a bod, right? The word, in the beginning was the word. How does the book of John start? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And it tells us through him all things were created. The very creator of the universe invites you into friendship. Not just being a servant. I mean, yes, we serve our God, but the goal is relationship. The goal is to be a friend of God. And you're invited into that, and I'm invited into that. Are you seeking that? Are you pursuing friendship with God? And so these three, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, they were, they were friends of Jesus. They were close. They were loved and appreciated by Jesus. And yet, it's also interesting that it did not insulate them from difficulty or take them out of the path of tragedy. And there's kind of an idea that if God, if I'm close to God and I have a good relationship with God, he's gonna bless me. And what that means is life's gonna be easy. That's never the promise in scripture. In fact, you go back and look at the friends of God. That's not the way that it goes. So, it says this, when he heard this, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And I think everybody, like the messengers that I breathe, the huge sigh of relief, they're like, whoo, Jesus said it won't end in death. And it's for God's glory. So obviously that means, I mean, remember that one where the, the I think it was Jairus, right? The, the leader, like 
maybe it was a centurion. I'm getting my stories from Luke confused here. But you know the one where, they, where he comes and Jesus just sends them away and says, go away, your, your son is healed or your servant is healed. I mean, Jesus just speaks the word from a distance, blew everybody's mind. So they've heard that, obviously. They know that, that account. And so clearly they're like, okay, well, Jesus says it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay for God's glory. He's going to recover. He's going to be better. But Jesus actually means something deeper, doesn't he? Usually he does. <laughs> As you read through Jesus' words, he's speaking on multiple levels here. And Jesus means that death will not have the final word. That death will not have the victory. Verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Like this is John's comment. And why, why is he telling you this? Because what's gonna happen next may make you doubt and question that a little bit. That's why he's telling you that. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. What? What, what, what's Jesus doing here? He, if I was writing the story, like it would go differently, right? If I had to, if, if it was my, if, if I was coming up with it, it would have been like, and then Jesus took off running, like laced up, bent down, laced up his sandals and just took off running as fast as he could. Hightailed it back there. Or even better, I mean, there was that cool time in the boat where all of a sudden they just, like, Jesus steps into the boat, they're at shore, and so obviously he's Jesus, so Jesus just, like, boom, appears, like, boom, teleports, <laughs> and he's on the scene. That's how I, that's how I would write the story. <laughs> One of my commentaries said this, he said, and I thought it was really... Um, appropriate to life. The urgency felt by others is not necessarily the same as the divine timing within which he works. Have you ever felt that? The urgency you felt around a situation in your life clearly has not been the same as the urgency God feels. Like your timing is right now, I want this, I want an answer, I want a solution, I want the tension gone, and God's timing... Well, just quite frankly, it seems like he's late, right? Anybody? <laughs> I remember as we were, uh, uh, we first moved into this building, looked nothing like this, just like, you know, an old hardware store with white VCT tiles and, and uh, <laughs> but we only had a short-term lease and I remember every time we had to make a negotiation, like the guy up in Aspen, it would be like delays and I was always freaking out, like, are they pulling back? You know, are they not gonna do this? And then, then it would come around. I'm like, whew, thank you, Lord, right? And then the next time, same thing. And then, we, you know, as we're trying to purchase and hic hiccup is at, hiccups at the end and all this, and I'm freaking out. And it, God made it happen, but I would have preferred it a little sooner and a little less stress and tension along the way, just if I can be real honest, right? But his timing often isn't the same. He has a, a plan and a purpose that goes deeper beyond what we understand. And so Jesus, instead of hightailing it over there, he, he, he's already said this isn't going to end in death and it's going to be for God's glory and then he just kicks back. I mean, he kicks back, right? 
Who knows what he's doing? Maybe he's just like chilling out on the Sea of Galilee, you know, having campfires, roasting some, some fish and marshmallows and, and just like having a little retreat. And the disciples, in the meantime, have thought like, okay, well, he said Lazarus is going to be okay. It's been a couple days, so maybe he just forgot about this. <laughs> and then Jesus says, let's go back to Judea. Verse eight, but rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you were gonna go back? They're like, oh no, he thought we were off the hook. Because remember, the last couple chapters of John, multiple times they've tried to arrest him, they've tried to kill him. Why? Because he kept making these crazy statements about being God. It wasn't because he helped people. It's because he, he kept making these wild claims that he was God. And so they've tried to stone him with rocks like multiple times, kill him, take him out. And the disciples are like, ah, time out. This doesn't seem like a very good idea. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of, of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble for they will see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. Now, when Jesus healed the man born blind, he said something kind of similar to this, right? Night is coming when I'm not going to be around anymore, but while I'm in the, in the world, like the thing to focus on is doing the things you're called to do, doing the, the work of the Father. Back in chapter nine. And so Jesus reminds them, hey, there's a limited time here. The time is limited to, to accomplish the work the Father has given me in this world. And the time is limited for you and me to say yes to the things that God is calling us to, to participate. This is an invitation to be part of what Jesus is accomplishing in the world. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, follow me and you're gonna see clearly. Stay here, like chicken out, stay here and you're gonna live your days stumbling in the dark wondering what could have been. Now is your opportunity. Now is your opportunity. And I think so often we're afraid of what might happen if we step into what we feel like God's calling. But what about what might not happen if we choose to say no to what God's calling us to step into? That should be much more of a concern for us. And always God calls us to trust him first, to step into the thing first. Have you noticed that? He very rarely gives you all the, I mean, we want all the information ahead of time and, you know, the full fine print and read through everything. And that's not the way that God works. He says, hey, I'm placing this thing in front of you and I'm giving you the opportunity to step into it. Are you going to say yes? Are you going to obey? Are you going to have that conversation? Are you going to take this opportunity or this ministry opportunity? Are you going to launch this thing I'm calling you to launch? You know, I'm, I'm, I've laid this on your heart. Are you going to apologize to that person? Are you going to reach out and connect? Are you going to pray for them? Are you going to share the gospel? Today is the day, right? There's an old cliche that the safest place is in the center of God's will. And, and it's true, but I think our definition of safe is a little different than God's. I, I just read uh, an update. We've got some missionary friends. They just like moved to Russia, like this Muslim tribe in the corner of Russia. 
And it was so interesting as we were reading this off, because obviously, you know, with everything going on right now geopolitically, like, that doesn't seem like a really good idea. But man, they're where God's called them to be, and God's doing some really cool stuff. Verse 11, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our, our friend Lazarus, why do we have to go back? Well, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm gonna go there and wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Like, uh, let's, let's think this through, Jesus. So, uh, I mean, if he's just asleep, he's obviously gonna, gonna, gonna wake up, Jesus. We don't really need to go risk our lives. <laughs> but 13, Jesus had been speaking of his death but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. And so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> and how's this for a kinder, more sensitive Jesus? And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. I mean, I'm sure they're going, what? You've been kicking back on the beach for two days. We're gonna go now? What, what's going on, Jesus? For your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. See, this is hard for us, isn't it? Living in this tension. That I did not show up in the way that you thought or expected or wanted me to show up, but I have a reason and a purpose for my delay. And for your sake, disciples, there's a bigger thing happening here because this sign, the seventh sign, um, followed by the fact that I'm going to willingly give my life and then I'm going to rise again is going to propel and launch you to the ends of the earth because you will be so convinced that you have encountered the living God. It's going to change the world. Jesus knew this thing would make such an impact on his disciples, it would be a huge part in the spread of the gospel around the world. I think a great question for us to ask when we're wondering where God is in a situation is, what if this thing I'm going through right now might lead someone else to Jesus? Do we even pause and consider that? Lord, is there, is there a way that this thing that I'm in right now might be used by you to lead someone else to Jesus? that this could be used to further your kingdom and the people that are right around me on my left and right. And I don't understand it and I don't get it and I don't understand your timing, but in the midst of this, how can this be used for you? Verse 16, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we might die with him. <laughs> now I love it because he's like, all right, we're in but a little bit of a pessimist, right? This isn't like glass half full, you know? <laughs> He's like, all right, well, let's go. A little Eeyore, right? <laughs> I love Thomas. You see him like several times throughout the Gospel of John. I, uh, we did an Easter message on him a couple of years ago because his story is so powerful. He'll, after the resurrection and him encountering the, uh, the risen Jesus, he'll have a profound realization and he'll worship him and say, my Lord and my God. And Thomas, actually, they don't, they don't die, actually, at this point. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't die. They go to Jerusalem. Jesus goes on to die and rise again. But you know what? Every, every one of his early disciples, other than John and Judas, will go on to die m martyr's deaths 
And John, they tried. They boiled them in oil, and it freaked him out when he lived. So they didn't. They just let him be. The, that's the author of this gospel that we're reading. They would go to the ends of the earth because of their conviction, because of the things they'd seen, and most of all, because Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection, and then he pulled it off, and they were not willing to let go of their story. If you're a skeptic, you gotta deal with that. You gotta wrestle with that. All right, verse 17, on his arrival, so now they, they take the day or longer journey to Bethany. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now this is significant. He'd already been in the tomb for four days. Four, was, four days was significant. Um, and why this is so significant, and it gives you a little clue as to why Jesus delayed his departure. Four days, uh, their culture had a tradition that the, the soul of a dead person stays near the body for three days and, and tries and intends to re-enter it, but as soon as it sees the appearance change or that rigor mortis and, uh, or uh, decom the decomposing begins, um, it departs. And in a hot culture like this, man, they would bury them right away because you didn't want that to start stinking, right? And so the, kind of the, the, the idea behind this, and this is not scriptural, this is in some of the Midrash, some uh, commentary and other traditions that the Jewish people had. Um, but kind of the idea behind this is that Jesus, or uh, Lazarus, wasn't just mostly dead. Anybody remember Princess Bride? Yeah, like the movie that stands the test of time. I, like, you know, kids these days like it. We liked it when we were kids. Um, he's, he's mostly, he's not dead. He's mostly dead. There's a big distinction between dead, dead, and mostly dead. Anybody remember, I can't do Billy Crystal's voice, so I won't try. <laughs> Great movie. But the whole point here is Lazarus is dead. Like beyond hope. I mean, there had been some amazing things with some of the super prophets in the Old Testament and some people that actually um, came back from the dead. But never anything like this had ever happened in history. And so, now Bethany, it says, was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Middle Eastern culture, even to this day, is uh, much more connected with extended family and cousins and second cousins and friends. I mean, the whole town would have just been packed full of people mourning and wailing. They would mourn for seven days and not like, you know, we do quiet, somber, don't let anybody see emotion, quick to get the tissues out. They would like loud, wailing grief. In fact, I think in many ways, a more healthy way to experience Grief. It says, now when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She knows, if you'd just been here, Jesus. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Now, there's a couple ways, and one of my commentaries thought that basically what she meant here, she didn't think Jesus was going to do anything about it. But just basically saying, if you would have been here, 
My brother wouldn't have died. And there's good evidence because if you work the timing out, there's good evidence that Lazarus probably died right after those messengers took off. So by the time they got to Jesus, because he'd been in the tomb for four, four days, right? So you calculate the journey, a day's journey in there and all that. Um, it was very likely that by the time that the messengers arrived, Jesus knew Lazarus was already dead. So this isn't like an accusation. But it's just grief. And it's almost like, it, maybe this means like, if you'd been here, you could have healed Lazarus, but I still believe in you and that God works through you. I still believe in you, Jesus. But here's what I see. I mean, Jesus sent the messengers back with a, a message. And what was that message? This sickness will not end in death. And so I think I see here a glimmer of hope. Like hope that she doesn't want to hold on to too tightly because it hurts too much, but maybe just a little bit of hope, hope beyond hope, shaky hope, shaky faith. That she's not even willing to express. And Jesus replies to her like this. He says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. It's comforting. It's comforting. And yet Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. They believed in a, in a great resurrection at the end of time. She's like, I know. I know. It's kind of like that comfort at the funeral of someone you dearly love and you, and you know, and yet it still hurts so bad. That's, that's, that's the way it's meant to be. That there's a comfort in that. We don't grieve like people with no hope, but... But still, the pain, and I think that's what she's experiencing in this moment, I know. And G get this, because Jesus makes her a promise and she turns it into a theological principle. And I think we miss the, the intimacy and the, the nearness of what God wants to do in our lives so many times because we just turn things into abstract theological principles. Like when Jesus said, I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And yet when you're going through the thing you're going through so many times, you can hear that and be like, yeah, I know. But you don't let it impact you. It's like a truth sort of like set up on a shelf here that you acknowledge in your, in your mind and nod, but it doesn't actually, you don't actually let it translate to your heart where the fact that you are with me means that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is within me, like the Holy Spirit indwells you if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus. That's powerful. That's an amazing reality, and yet so many times that's a theological principle that we tuck over here and we don't allow it to actually impact us. We don't actually live like it's true. Jesus, you're with me. Okay, I, I know, but we don't actually live like he's with us. We stop hoping. See, I think for most people, it's not like, you don't doubt God's ability to move. You've got that theology figured out, right? No, I know God could move. I know God could heal. I know God could do this. You just quit expecting him to actually show up and do anything in your life. And so many times it's because you've been hurt. So many times it's because you prayed and the prayer didn't, the answer didn't come in the way or the time that you thought it would. You prayed for that child and, and, and they walked away anyway. You prayed for that relationship and it fell apart. You prayed for that person and, and, it, 
and, and it didn't end the way you hoped it would. And you kind of, along the way, you just gave up. You gave up. You began just, you stopped hoping. You stopped risking. You, you started praying like paper tiger prayers. They didn't have any teeth. You know, John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, he used to say, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And yet for so many, somewhere along the way, you quit risking anything. You quit having those, those you, you quit just expecting God to show up because it hurts too much. You lost your childlike faith. I watched my daughter and she's, <laughs> she's 10 now and she's been so amazing as she's been little. I watched her pray for her great grandma like almost every day to come to faith and that happened like the week or a week or two before her death. <laughs> I've, she's been recently praying for, um, praying for a teacher and God's been moving in some cool, interesting, cool ways and and yet I think for so many of us, we end up losing that childlike faith as we get older. Life has a way of beating it out of you. And if you don't draw near, if you don't stay close to Jesus, if you don't continue to trust in spite of those questions, you find yourself losing it. See, there's a, there's a story of the, you remember the man that in the scripture, he's, Jesus says, do you believe I can, heal, uh, I can heal your son? And he's like, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. I believe kind of. I believe a little. There's a spark of hope and faith, but you gotta help me. And I think that's where so many of us end up. And maybe you didn't start there, but I think that's where so many of us end up a little ways down the road is we give up. We quit hoping. And you need that prayer more than you know. I believe, help me in my unbelief. I, I need you to help reinstill hope and life in my heart. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe it? Do you believe this? Beautiful statement. One of the seven I am statements that brings us back to Exodus where God introduces himself and says, I am that I am. And here, Jesus speaks this to this woman in so much pain. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, two things. The first thing is, if you have a, like, who would say this? I often quote C.S. Lewis, that famous quote, Jesus didn't leave you the option that he was just a good moral teacher. He, had, he was either crazy, he was a liar, or he was lunatic, or he was Lord. Because who would say something like this? As Jesus stands here to this woman in all this pain, he looks at her and says, yes, that hope you have in the future, I'm gonna jump in, I'm gonna bring the future now. <laughs> Your hope is standing right in front of you. The resurrection. I am the life. You can experience the power of God in your life in a powerful way. You can experience a taste of the future when things will be made right and new, when the kingdom of God will come in, in fullness. I'm going to let you experience a bit of that right now. 
there's a there's a theological um, term for this. It's called the already and the not yet or the now and the not yet. And here's the idea is when Jesus comes, he initiates, he, he, um, he initiates the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is drawn near and yet the kingdom of God will not come in fullness and in completion when, rest, when all things will be made new and right and he will wipe every tear away from everyone's eyes until he, Jesus returns and yet he gives us the ability to live now experiencing little glimpses and little tastes of the kingdom of God. Sometimes we see that in a miraculous healing. When we pray and God miraculously heals somebody and it's like the kingdom of God bursts in in that moment, wow, the power of God. When all things will be made right, when all pain and sickness will be removed. And we experience a taste of that right now. But the tension is we live in this place in the middle between when Jesus came and walked this planet and when he will come again and bring the kingdom of God in fullness and, and that's the weight, that's the tension we live in, is the Holy Spirit indwells us, and yet we, we pray and we don't always see the answer to our prayer, and, and often not in the way we, we thought or, or hoped for or in our timing. And sometimes we get an understanding three, four, five years back when we look back and go, oh, God, that's why you did that, and that's how it's for your glory. Sometimes we don't get that moment until eternity when we actually go, oh, that's what you were doing, God. Sometimes it doesn't come in this life. And something interesting um, is that in spite of what's about ready to happen, do you know that Lazarus is going to die again? Yeah. Jesus raises, Jesus raises people from the dead. What, what happens? Well, they get to die again. Lucky you. Because unless Jesus comes back first, that's where every one of us ends up. Last I checked, the rate's pretty close to 100%. And so the fact that we experience God's power in his life does not insulate us from pain and grief. And the fact that we do grieve, we don't grieve as people without hope because we understand the end. And we, but here's, here's where the tension comes in. Are you gonna give up hope that God's gonna move in this life? Or are you going to live anticipating that he's going to show up in powerful ways? Jesus is calling, he's saying, I'm calling you into my story because I'm in the middle of something. And the question is, will you live in the tension of that? Will you live anticipating you're, you're going to show up and yet walk through those times where you don't understand and hold that with childlike faith? That's, that's our call and our commission as his followers. Or are you going to get jaded and disappointed and just basically give up and quit praying and quit seeking him and quit taking risks for him? Just stay in a way. Well, I'm not going to go to Judea. You go ahead and go. Verse 27, yes, Lord, she replied, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. She says, yes, uh, no doubt she doesn't under comprehend all the implications of this at this moment, right? And after she had said this, she went back and called her, her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. 
And now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So Mary runs out, the crowd follows her, she falls at Jesus' feet and basically says the same thing that Martha says. And you know what I love about this? We, we meet Mary in another place, in another gospel, don't we? And where is she? At the feet of Jesus. And in the midst of a wonderful time, Jesus in her home, everything's going great. They're in the presence of the rabbi, the great rabbi. She is sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him. And in the moment of the greatest pain and tragedy, she's at the feet of Jesus. This is a mark of spiritual maturity, is that you run toward God. In the midst of great times, you seek him. In the midst of really hard times, you seek him. When you've blown it, you don't, you don't go away. You run to him for forgiveness and receive that with joy. That's a mark of spiritual maturity in your life. The question is, does hardship cause you to run towards Jesus or away from him? You just check out? Or do you pursue him? Do you fall at his feet? You see, most people don't walk away from their faith um, because of you know, natural disasters across the country, but because of personal circumstances. So many people, it derails them. That there's a disillusionment. You thought God was gonna show up in a way and you prayed and he didn't. You were disappointed, you were disillusioned. And because of that, it leads to some doubt in your life. Like, I wonder if God really cares about me. I wonder if he really loves me. And that, that's very difficult. And that ends up leading you to detach. This is the story for so many people. You gotta be really careful in these seasons that you run to Jesus, that you fall at his feet. All right, let's finish the story up. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Now the Greek in here, um, the NIV, this really doesn't capture it, this deeply moved. Um, this is true, but it's even um, in the Greek, it's a word they would use of a racehorse like angry this bothered him. He's upset about death, about what sin has done in this world, about the fact that it's not the way. The God of the universe is really upset and agitated at the whole situation. He's angry at death and the devastation that it brings because it's not the way. It wasn't his original good design for humanity. It's because of corruption. It's because of Satan. It's because of sin. And one day it will be made real and it will be wiped away. And then we see one of the, one of the sweetest verses in all of scripture, verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Parents, have you ever felt your kid's pain even though you knew everything was gonna be okay? And yet you grieved in the pain that they were going through in the moment. 
N.T. Wright, uh, the biblical scholar, says, hey, there's no doubt that this verse is historical because nobody in the culture would have made this up. A God who weeps? Here's what he says. Jesus, in tears, we are seeing not just a flesh and blood human being, but the word made flesh, the word through whom the worlds were made, weeps like a baby at the grave of his friend. He has borne our griefs, said the prophet, and carried our sorrows. How powerful. Jesus enters into the pain of the moment and identifies with humanity. Verse 36, and then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not the one who have opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Good point. And this is the tension that we live in. And this is our, the tension we exist in. Why didn't he do something about this? Clearly he loved him. I don't get it. That's a tension, and we're called as followers of Jesus to live in this tension. Not pretend like it doesn't hurt, not just happy talk, but to actually live in the tension of this is terribly painful, and he loves me so much, and yet I don't get it. Why would God, why won't God, when will God? Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. In the old King James Version, it says, but Lord, he stinketh. Verse 40, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Martha, trust me. Trust me, I'm going to expose some ickiness here because we have to do that for me to deal with it. Trust me. Verse 41, so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He's praying, no doubt, with his arms raised. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you will always hear me, but I said this, <laughs> I love this, I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe you sent me. Implication, he's been praying about this for the last few days. They're on the same page. This is gonna go down. But he wants to make sure everybody knows this is God. <laughs> when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Just a shout of raw authority. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes, let him go. No doubt he's like coming in these mummy movies, right? Like he's coming out, everybody's like, whoa, like they're freaked out. Jesus is like, come on guys, let him go. <laughs> Verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Would you stand? You know, these questions will always be with us. Why won't God? Why would God? When will God? Any preacher that tells you the, that there's an easy answer to these is just trying to sell you something, okay? We ask these. It's okay to ask them. You're in good company with some of Jesus' closest friends if you've asked them. Jesus' closest friends experience the pain of some of these questions. 
And being a friend of God does not insulate us against the life events that make us ask these questions. But what would it take in your life for you to trust God even when you don't have the answers for these questions? Can you take a a step of faith as we close today and maybe just hold your hands out to God and say, I'm just giving you this and saying I'm gonna trust you even though I don't understand it. Have you lost the anticipation in your life that God is gonna move in a powerful way? Have you quit risking? Have you kind of given up? You still know the right things to say in your, in your head, but you quit living like it. You quit taking a risk. What if today you re-engaged? You say, God, I, w- I want to experience your power in my life, and I want to I pray bold prayers, and I want to see you work in your way, in your time, but I want to re-engage. I want to pray for you in that. Some of you, you're just in a, in, in a place going, God, you're just so late. Where are you? Why aren't you showing up? I want to encourage you. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. I don't know when it'll all become clear. I don't know when you'll understand. But I believe that's true. What Jesus said to Martha, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And in spite of the fact that you don't understand, he loves you so much. You have a heavenly father that loves you so much that that he was willing to send his son to come in the flesh and die for you, that you could have forgiveness and life in him and friendship with God. Maybe as we close here today, you would embrace that. Let me pray for you. Father, I lift up uh, each person here. Lord, I know in this room there's so many different stories right now and people where this is so uh, acute and intense for and others where, where, where they're, they're, they're in a pretty good spot, Lord. But I pray that you would just encourage hearts, that you would re-engage faith and a passion for living for you and by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would renew hearts, that you would renew hope. Lord, we love you. And I pray for each one here in your name. Amen.